Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have Noam Chomsky talking not about politics, but about baseball. Opening day is Sunday, April 3rd. Dave Zirin interviewed Chomsky. We have highlights of that interview. Also, Andrew Coburn of Harper's Magazine explains the election industrial complex. And Aaron Aubrey Kaplan talks about Obama and black people. Her new book is I Heart Obama. First up today, we ask a question. President Trump? What kind of president would Donald Trump be? For that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a reporter who writes regularly for The Nation. He's the author of seven books, including The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Still Lives, and an amazing memoir, The House of 20,000 Books. He also teaches writing at UC Davis, where we reached him today. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Well, you've been thinking about what Donald Trump might do if he were elected president. Some people say he's a New York real estate guy. He's basically a deal maker. He doesn't have any real ideological commitments or values. So it will be possible to make deals with him, normal political deals. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's certainly true up to a point that any politician, whatever their stripes, at the end of the day, makes deals. Um, so it's certainly possible that were Trump to be in the White House, he would be cutting deals both with Congress and with international figures in the same way as other presidents are. For me, what's interesting about Trump and what's completely disconcerting about Trump isn't so much whether or not he can cut deals. It's everything else that goes with that. It's the fact that in addition to being a businessman who cuts deals, He's also a demagogue. It's the fact that in addition to somebody who may or may not be good at business, he's also someone who is both spewing racial and religious bigotry and also encouraging his supporters increasingly to take on the trappings of a violent mob. And that, to me, is the most disturbing thing we've seen as Trump's campaign has developed, 
It's that whatever his moorings as a businessman, he has redefined himself as an extraordinarily dangerous demagogue. One of the things that has most upset us about Trump is his recent statements repeatedly that he would order torture, he said in that in that Republican debate, that military officials, the generals, would obey his orders to order, to order torture. You want to talk about that? Yeah, and, and, you know, this again cuts to what you were saying about the deal-making. When Trump's in front of rallies of excited supporters, he routinely says that he will do waterboarding and, quote, a hell of a lot worse than that. And he sort of fetishizes torture. And I've written about this for Haaretz in Israel and for various other publications. He doesn't just say, well, occasionally states have to do unsavory things. What he says is he glorifies in the fact that he will make bloodshed and pain the normal response of his administration. And when he says, I will get the military to obey me, when he's talking about torture, when he's talking about the summary execution of prisoners, and when he's talking about collective punishment of terrorist families, all of which he said both on the campaign trail and in various television and radio interviews, when he says this, what he's saying is, I will do my best to make the institutions of the state complicit in my sadism. And this is a classic totalitarian strategy. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Stalin and the Soviet Union or whether you're talking about the European fascists in the 1930s, or whether you're talking about military leaders like Pinochet in Chile more recently, that one of the projects of totalitarian regimes is to morally compromise other institutions. And the more those institutions become compromised, the more they become drawn in to the project of the leader. And that's what I think is absolutely new about Trump's movement in this country, is that he is beginning to use all of the linguistic trappings of totalitarianism. It's true that he said all those things, but he's also reversed himself. He said, quote, I understand that the United States is bound by laws and treaties, and I will not order our military or other officials to violate those laws and will seek their advice on such matters, continuing to quote Donald Trump. I will not order a military officer to disobey the law. It is clear that as president, I will be bound by laws just like all Americans, and I will meet those responsibilities, close quote. Isn't that exactly what we want our presidents to say? No, we want our, our presidents to genuinely follow both domestic law and international law. What Trump has said is in certain circumstances, when he's addressing certain people, he says, I will massively expand the use of torture and collective punishment. And then when he's challenged by legal experts or by senior people in the military, he backpedals a bit and says, oh, I won't ask you to do anything that's not legal. And then in the next sentence, he says, but I will expand America's laws to make permissible and legal more forms of torture. So no, this is not what you want a leader to say. What you want a leader to say and to think, you want that leader to have a commitment to human rights and to international norms. And what Trump has said, and clearly what he thinks, is that those norms do not hold, that whatever he says essentially goes. And that's not the rule and that's not the thinking of a democratic politician. That's the thinking of a demagogue who wants to bend and twist fundamental international norms about things like torture to fit the mood of his moment. Well, Bush and Cheney practiced torture, but they crafted legal explanations that what they called enhanced interrogation techniques were not violations of international law. 
Trump, uh, in contrast, tells the truth about torture instead of using this kind of euphemisms. Is that actually worse? You know, it's an interesting question, and I wrote about this in Haaretz. And I think it is worse without in any way, shape, or form minimizing the criminal activity and certainly the moral, the morally reprehensible activity that the Bush administration condoned, whether it was in Abu Ghraib, whether it was in Guantanamo Bay, or whether it was in CIA black sites. At least they did it semi-secretively. Now, that doesn't morally justify anything that they did. But what they didn't do was invite the entire voting population of the United States to overtly collaborate, to enter the torture chamber. And what I wrote in Haaretz was the difference with Trump's rhetoric is he is glorying in it and he is urging his supporters to glory in it. And once you go down that road, then you open the doors to the torture chamber and suddenly the entire political system becomes morally complicit in a criminal project. And I think it's an extraordinary road for a democracy to be veering toward. The other big theme of Trump's uh, rallies that his supporters always cheer for is that he will build a border wall, he will round up undocumented Mexicans, this kind of a polarization of the, the, uh, the, the us and the them, the other. Uh, but Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept pointed out recently that Obama already has more Border Patrol agents than any other president, and Obama has deported more people than any other president, and therefore Trump is just proposing to extend what Obama has done. What do you think about Glenn Greenwald's argument? I think there's a lot to be said that the current situation is nowhere near as, quote-unquote, liberal as conservative critiques of Obama and the border would like to play it as being. And by contrast, what Trump is proposing while it is foul and while it is morally reprehensible, is in some ways a continuation of the current moment. But again, there, there is a difference. And one of the differences is the tone that Trump is setting. When Trump sees somebody at his rally and he critiques him and he says, you're a Mexican, aren't you? What he's doing is he's whipping up racial hatred, he's whipping up ethnic animosities, and he's encouraging his followers to say it's all right to slur people by race. It's okay to not engage in proper political argument, but instead to just try and end an argument by saying, well, you're a Mexican, or you're a Muslim, and therefore you think this way. And again, once you go down that road, you start closing off the doors to democratic participation. What you start doing is you start replacing debate by intimidation. And the more you replace debate by intimidation, and ultimately the more you replace debate by violence, the more you make impossible the conditions of democracy. And that's what Trump's doing at the moment. In one venue after another after another, his language is inciting intimidation and violence. And that's something that we saw with George Wallace 50 years ago nearly. It's something that we saw with some of the American demagogues like Father Coughlin back in the 1930s. But we haven't had a genuinely demagogic candidacy in this country for many, many decades. And that's what we're seeing at the moment with the Trump candidacy is demagoguery unleashed. Trump has said that he will be different, quote, when he is president. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Trump. I would have a very, very presidential demeanor when I win. <laughs> <laughs> but until such time, you have to hit back, close quote. Do you have any comments, Sasha? Well, I mean, this is an absurdity. The, the idea that you can turn on and off your presidential demeanor, that you can be a buffoon one minute just because it suits you, or you can be a demagogue one minute just because it suits you, and you can insult people by race and by religion and by gender. 
you can mock people for being disabled, you can do all of these things that are so far beyond the political pale, and then dial it back and sort of through an act of extraordinary historical erasure that you can suddenly become presidential. That's not how it worked. I mean, Stalin tried that. He tried to take out of his photos people who had been declared non-persons. And so you had this sort of incredibly cretinous historical project where people were part of history one moment, and then the next moment they fell into disfavor, and they were literally disappeared. And that's the ultimate totalitarian project. It's what George Orwell wrote about in 1984. But the idea that you could do that in this day and age with all of the memory we have of the ugliness of this campaign, the idea that you could then turn around and say, all right, the primaries are over. I had to appeal to this somewhat raucous base while I was in the primaries. But now I'm going to be a grand unifier. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to talk nicely. I'm going to stop insulting international leaders. I'm going to stop insulting minorities. And suddenly I'm going to be the great unifier. He's got to be living in cloud cuckoo land if he thinks that he could genuinely pull off that trick. What what do you think about the uh, activists and the students who who risk assault and arrest uh, to go to Trump rallies, go inside and and protest against him? He he says they're denying him his First Amendment rights of freedom of speech. He does he does say that, and he also says that he's going to urge them to all be arrested and prosecuted. And what I found most interesting and chilling in a way about his response, he didn't just say he wanted them arrested. He then said, so that they will have an arrest record that will, quote, ruin the rest of their lives. And to me, that's a really amazing insight. He's a very powerful, very wealthy man with a lot of resources at his disposal. And his immediate response to people who are protesting him is, I want to ruin their lives. Now, if you then sort of come back to your previous question, what will he be like as a president? You know, can he be presidential? He could be presidential if your definition of a president is somebody who thinks that all dissent is illegitimate and that anybody who dares to protest should have their lives ruined. That's a very familiar kind of presidency. It's the kind of presidency that General Pinochet was very good at or Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. But it's not the kind of presidential mindset that we expect in a pluralist functioning participatory democracy. So you ask me what I think of those students. I think they're very brave because I think what they're doing is they're going up against an increasingly intimidatory machine and they're going up against a man who has made it clear that he views them not just as people who disagree with him, but as his enemy. Sasha Abramsky, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Sasha. You're very welcome. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about the election industrial complex with Andrew Coburn. He's Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author most recently of Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. We reached him today in Washington. Andrew Coburn, welcome. Hey, glad to be with you. Well, I got another invitation from Hillary Clinton this week. This one was for dinner in L.A. with Hillary at George Clooney's house. It cost uh, $66,800 for a couple. And you get to meet George Clooney's amazing wife, Amal. Uh, This money and money like it, you report in the new issue of Harper's, goes to something you call the election industrial complex. What is the election industrial complex? It is the election industry which comprises everyone from the you know, strategic 
strategy consultants to the pollsters to the media buyers to the um, digital specialists who are a rising class well last but not least to the tv broadcasters really the whole sort of economy of tv news broadcasting is dependent on this industry with all sorts of effects so we've probably left out a few including the fundraisers who are a very key part of it all And and how much money are we talking about here? How does it compare to other industries in America? It's actually a comparatively few people. You know, it's about sort of, you know, less than a dozen or so sort of big firms that really get the bulk, you know, the bulk of the business. But uh, the rough yardstick in 19, um, sorry, in 2012, that election cost just around $7 billion. And this year, this one will cost more, unquestionably. We don't know how much yet, obviously, but I, I would I would guess, you know, <clears throat> well above eight. Well, we've been told for a long time that money is the mother's milk of politics. Uh, the assumption here is the voters can be won over if the candidate has enough money. Most of the money, uh, I guess, goes for TV ads, and, and we all assume TV ads work. But, but do they work? Is there evidence about this? Well, there's a great deal of evidence that said they don't work. Uh, I think most blatantly, uh, let's look at the whole, at uh, the effort to stop Donald Trump, which has been a huge money spender for the industry. Um, in the Florida election, the Florida primary, Republican primary, the anti-Trump forces sort of, you know, roused all sorts of billionaires and millionaires from their beds and uh, <laughs> spent $35 million on anti-Trump attack ads in Florida. And as we can see, it made absolutely no difference. You know, it was clearly a complete waste of money. Waste of money for the donors, or whoever was suckered in, you know, people who were suckered into giving this money, but extremely profitable for the, uh, for the people who, uh, you know, who raised the money, invested the money in TV ads, bought the ads, made the ads. Uh, if you take a rough, since most of this was super PAC money, where the profits are higher for the industry because of reasons we could go into. Um, you take 15%. Um, you know, I'd say people, the industry probably just from that one primary alone, just on attacking Trump, made 6 or $7 million on TV. Wow. Well, Donald Trump, in many ways, seems to be the great uh, exception. He gets... Free TV, so he doesn't need to run ads. Has has Donald Trump shattered the election industrial complex this year? Not at all. He's been a huge boost to it. It's true that he himself had discovered the trick of you know getting getting free TV because he's a professional TV entertainer, basically. So it's not surprising, and he knows how to do that. But it's been for the industry at large. It's been incredibly profitable. I mean, just look at what the um, Les Moonves the uh, boss of cbs has been saying he's been he's actually said in public go trump is <laughs> indicating that there's been a you know huge revenue earner for for his network and ditto for fox and cnn and all the rest of them all the broadcasters because uh, you know first of all most directly you know ratings rise because people want to see trump particularly you know the debate ratings have been sort of astronomical compared to previous years and then as i sort of indicated earlier it's been they get an additional revenue stream from all the money that's spent attacking him. So they make it both ways. Uh, the industry makes it both ways. I mean, I quote in the piece of Mark, uh, Mark Melman, who's a big Democrat consultant here in, this, uh, here in Washington, uh, 
who said he said um, said I, I you know I worry about the country. I'm not worried about the industry. <laughs> Uh, you, you say in your Harper's piece that a losing campaign can be nearly as profitable for the election industrial complex as a winning campaign. And you have a wonderful example, the campaign of Dr. Ben Carson, the mild-mannered uh, neurosurgeon. Well, right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really the, the industry in its sort of purest form, the Carson campaign, because it was clearly, as far as I can see, a straightforward commercial enterprise. In fact, there was a phrase said to me by another Republican consultant. It was a campaign designed not to win the White House, which obviously it wasn't going to do, but it was designed to, you know, to make money, which it did. The people involved in you know, getting him to run the draft Ben Carson campaign or whatever it was called. Yeah, that's what it was called, actually. They had a history. Some of them had a history of finding people like him, i.e. black conservatives with a religious bent, who really, you know, aren't you know, never going to get the nomination and certainly never going to get the, you know, win the White House, but are fantastically good and a fantastic draw for getting particularly elderly and low-income conservative voters to to write checks of, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 dollars um, for whatever reason. I don't know, but it's the same people were behind, you know, were very much part of the Herman Cain campaign four mm -hmm. years ago, if you yes. remember that. And there's been a whole slew of other sort of down-ballot campaigns with the same thing operators. So, you know, they exist to find people like Carson and raise money off them. The whole Carson, most of the Carson apparatus, you know, the, the, the people involved in his campaign were raising lots of money, which a lot of it w would be immediately reinvested through firms they controlled to, to raise more money. I mean, taking with them, have, taking a hefty commission along the way. And then that money would be spent with other firms that people involved with, you know, officials of the campaign, you know, to, you know, hefty checks to them. So even as the campaign was, you know, even after it was a complete, obviously, losing proposition, they continued to raise money. They continued to give themselves huge checks. And, it was, you know, that's, you know, that, that's the election industrial complex at work. Yes, and Ben Carson's Super PAC took in $64 million and spent $57 million, mostly on raising more money. So if TV ads don't work to turn out voters, is there anything that does work? Yes. It's, you know, it's basically the most old-fashioned form of electioneering there is, which is going around and talking to voters. I explained in the piece that there was a, there was a bit of Yale at the time, a political scientist called Donald Green and Alan, another one, Alan Craven, who in the 90s decided to test, really do a proper you know, scientific test of what works to boost turnout? Because it's turnout that counts. Most people have made up their minds, you know, make up their minds on their own or have made up their minds ages ago of who they would feel like voting for. But most of the time, or a lot of the time, they just don't, most of them don't go out and vote or, you know, a, an appreciable portion don't. So the trick is to get your side out to go and vote. So these uh, professors um, ran all sorts of rather cleverly designed experiments to test what works in getting people to go vote. And it turned out that TV has almost zero effect. Robocalls, zero effect. Uh, direct mail, very little effect. What, what works are, well, personal phone calls, that helps. You know, a phone bank with live people calling up, that has a certain effect. 
and um, most particularly, you know, most definitely of all, uh, having people, you know, come out, uh, go around door to door, preferably people from the area who are like, you know, native to that area, uh, going around having real conversations, not simply a bang on the door and, you know, are you I hope you can vote, thank you, goodbye. No, it's talking to people, maybe going back again. In fact, the longer the conversation, the more people do it, better, the better. But that's what works. So you're saying that that uh, face-to-face talk with neighbors is the most effective way to get people to turn out and vote, but but that requires thousands of volunteers who actually care about the candidate enough to want to talk to their neighbors. Are you saying that's what American politics should be? Absolutely. Of course it should be that way. You know, it gets people involved in politics. And it's really no accident or no surprise, I don't think, that that is extremely unpopular with the industry. Um, first of all, because there's no money in it. You know, you you, you know, you make a million dollar TV buy, and if you're a, if you're acting on behalf of a super PAC, you probably cream off fifteen percent of that in the, you know the standard uh, commission that the TV station will pay you. On the other hand, you know, recruiting, training, you know, housing, feeding volunteers is a very unprofitable occupation. Last question. Bernie Sanders has raised $140 million or something like that in those famous $27 average contribution. Uh, does that money also go into the hands of the election industrial complex? Well, he puts a lot of money into um, into the volunteer effort. You know, the people he has doing his, you know, organizing the volunteer effort are, are very good and really get it. In fact, it was one of them who first turned me on to these Yale professors I was talking about. I think he's, he's getting so much money. I think, you know, a huge amount is going into TV. I'm not sure what, how much good that's doing, and very little, I suspect. But in fact, you know, places where he spent a sort of ton of money, uh, a lot of places like Illinois, it obviously didn't work for him. I think they just have so much money, and they're probably relatively honest folks compared to a lot of the others. And I... I, I pretty sure that they're not taking the whacking commissions that other do, others do. Andrew Coburn, his article, Down the Tube, Television Turnout in the Election Industrial Complex, is featured in the April issue of Harper's. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Well, today we're broadcasting from the Center for Obama Studies. And our guest is Erin Aubrey Kaplan. She's been writing about black issues for 25 years, including nine years as a staff writer for the L.A. Weekly in its glory days, and two years as a weekly op-ed columnist for the L.A. Times. She won the Penn Center USA Award for Literary Journalism. She wrote the book Black Talk, Blue Thoughts, and Walking the Color Line. And now she has a new book out. It's called I Heart Obama. Erin Aubrey Kaplan, Welcome. Thank you, John. It's wonderful to be here. This is one of my dreams to be on your show. It's true. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, uh, a lot of us here, you may know, have been complaining about Obama. Mm -hmm. I think you know the complaints. You probably know the complaints better than a lot of the people doing the complaining. So so let's get this out of the way before we start getting emails saying you didn't talk about drones, you didn't talk about the NSA. Mm. Where do you disagree with what Obama has done? There is much I don't agree with, John. But, you know, this book, I Heart Obama, is not really a dissection of his policies. I know 
his policies and what he does is connected to who he is. But this book is really an intimate look at the the way African-Americans in particular have experienced Obama, how how we've sort of processed him as a black leader, or even if he is a black leader, where he fits into our history, his symbolism, which is very, very powerful, will probably be his biggest legacy amongst us. So um, people do talk about what Obama has done, what he has stood for, you know, um, and many, many black folk don't agree, but they keep seeing him through the lens of, number one, the great um, political opposition that I call the white right, mm-hmm. which has been unprecedented, really, and very intense and has never let up. And so there's a lot about Obama that we identify with, his experience with that sort of racism. Um, it's something that, in my mind, has made him sort of a folk hero amongst us, right? So let me just make it clear. We're not going to talk about the war in Afghanistan. <laughs> We're not going to talk about the Wall Street people he appointed back in 2009, where we know the national security state is not a good thing. The war in Afghanistan, we're unhappy about that. That is off the table right now. <laughs> Do you worry about Obama? Do you worry something might happen oh, to him? Oh, still. Do you worry oh, about oh. how he's doing? Do you worry he's okay? I kind okay? of do. I kind of do. Although he's he's pretty – he's – one thing black people admire about him personally, you know, uh, is that he seems very emotionally resilient. He hasn't cracked up. He hasn't broken down. He hasn't said – he hasn't had a uh, any sort of meltdown or temper tantrum or – and he has no skeletons in his closet apparently – um, they would have found them by now. He seems very, very, uh, excuse the word, cool. cool. And that is a great okay. thing to admire. He has forbearance. You know, he endures. That's something I say in my book. And that is a, a hallmark of all black freedom fighters. You know, you you might lose the fight. You might lose the battle. In fact, uh, you know, you can't, you can't rely on success. But you have to make it through. And Obama has done that admirably, um, given everything thrown his way. And so there, that's that's something that we admire greatly about, yeah, you, you, about Obama. You have a wonderful line, he does not bleed. Right. And, you know, he he has a long view. He's a, he's, he's a strategist. So he'll plant a seed here, plant a seed there. Next thing you know, we're opening relations with Cuba. Um, we're opening relations with Iran. Um, he's clearly got a plan. And he kept himself together, and there's a lot to be said for that. Obama has not been an outsider bringing pressure on the system. He's he's in charge of the system. I, I think you noticed mm-hmm, this. Uh, mm-hmm. But hasn't the system kind of defeated him in many ways? Yes, it has. Um, yeah, it has. And Obama is, this is one of the great paradoxes about him. He's the ultimate insider. He's... He is at the center of power, you know, in in Washington. But since black people are the ultimate outsiders, socially um, um, marginalized, he also is that person, too. He he remains marginalized in the minds of many. Um, He's not accepted into the club. He is the um, the interloper. And that's really fascinating to me that uh, someone who's so acceptable on so many levels could be rejected that way. And what it says to black folks is, you know, none of us have a chance. If Obama can't be accepted and embraced um, or engaged with, what chance do any of us have for winning the assimilation battle we've been waging so long? So, you know, somebody, a few people have asked me, well, do you think there'll be another black president? And I, and I, one of my thoughts is, well, if young black people see what's ha- what happened to Obama, probably they won't want to be president. But it's, it's, it's like, um, what do we do with this information? We, we broke through, but at the mountaintop, 
There wasn't much there, you know? There was what you call his Trayvon Martin moment. Mm. After Trayvon Martin was shot and killed for, for doing nothing, Obama said, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon. Mm -hmm. How did you feel about that? I was actually moved by that. I think, I mean, many black people grumbled, said, well, he should have done more, you know. But to me, here he was admitting he was outing himself as a black person, you know. <laughs> um, he was, what he was saying was um, that, you know, he is part of of that community. He is one of us. Um, and he went further later on and said, um, had it, you know, I could have been Trayvon. Trayvon Martin is me. And so he's making this identification that, and to me, it was very powerful and certainly um, had not been, you know, no previous president could do that. And so he was he was he was saying to the country, this is something that all of us, all of us uh, suffer, all of us, all of us are part of and not just black Americans, but white Americans, too. Um, it was a real good it was a good teaching moment. But um, he immediately got backlash just for that. You know, people who said, well, you're, he's not Trayvon. He's that's absolutely ridiculous. But. He was making a, almost a spiritual statement, a cultural statement, and I was very relieved that he finally articulated what was so obvious to all of us. And that was, for me, a powerful moment, you know, and it will remain that way in my mind. A lot of people have complained about Obama's Father's Day speech in mm. 2008 in Chicago when he said black dads should be more responsible. That, of course, is the the conservative Mm -hmm. uh, view of everything that's wrong with black people. Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't he giving white conservatives exactly what they wanted at the expense of black men? Um, that's one view. Yeah, I, ca I call that his Bill Cosby moment, and he had several of those. It wasn't. It was also at Morehouse College when he delivered a graduation speech there. Um, the only president in history to address, you know, give a commencement address at a black college, HBCU. Um, I have to say, I went back and read a lot, some a couple of those speeches, and I will say I cringed at some of that. Um, other black folk I talked to said, well, you know, that's what we all do to each other. We're, there's a huge conservative streak amongst black people, um, politically liberal, socially conservative, and have this ongoing conversation about what we need to do to better ourselves. And some black folk felt that Obama was simply voicing that. But, of course, he voiced it in public. It had, takes on a different meaning. You have a different audience, and he must understand that. So I would have preferred he not say, you know, not say that. But I will say in a couple of speeches, particularly in his Morehouse speech where he talked to the black male graduates, there was a lot of subtleness in there, a lot of affirmation in that that wasn't picked up by the media. And we tend to grab onto his more controversial statements um, because, you know, they just make better news. And I'm not excusing his Bill Cosby moments because, you know, Obama is, look, he's a black middle class guy. A lot of black middle class people talk like that. I mean, frankly, I don't, but then I'm not middle class. But but it's it's a familiar conversation. And Obama was just kind of highlighting that conversation that we prefer to have in private. Um, I don't agree with it even in private, but that that particular criticism, sometimes it's not really condemnation of black people so much as it is, you know, we need a strategy. We have to get ourselves together because nobody's coming out here to help us. And for Obama to say that is different, though, because he is a president and he should help us. But, you know, I think most black people didn't like it, but kind of forgave him for it because he was up. There were other things to consider. Last question. Mm. How about Michelle? Oh, my goodness. That's another book. Um, <laughs> I really believe Michelle was more hampered, tamped down than Obama has been for the last eight years because um, she seems, you know, this is 
a cliche now, but she seems to be the fiery one, the yeah. one who is unapologetically black. She she made a misstep back, remember, in the first campaign where she said, uh, for the first time in my life, I am proud of my country. Mm-hmm. Very uncontroversial to me. I felt the same way. But, of course, it did not play well in Peoria. And so I really think that from that point, she didn't say a lot in terms of um, um, she was not the activist I hoped and others hoped she would be. She, you know, her cause is relatively safe, military families, childhood obesity. Um, she got the flack gar- for that. The garden in the backyard. The garden the in the White backyard. House. That's all nice. But I really feel there's a lot more she had to say. She, well, she has more decades to come. She so. has She has time. Aaron Aubrey Kaplan. Aaron, thanks for this book, and thanks so much for coming in today. Oh, thanks, John, for having me. I enjoyed it. Now it's time for Start Making Sense Sports. Opening day in baseball is Sunday, April 3rd. And for comment on the game, we turn to Dave Zirin and Noam Chomsky. Dave Zirin, of course, is sports editor of The Nation. He's the author of eight books on the politics of sports, most recently Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. He also hosts his own weekly show on Panoply, Edge of Sports Radio. You can listen at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Noam Chomsky really needs no introduction. We can say he's one of the world's leading linguists, social critics, political commentators, and activists. He's written more than 100 books. The most recent one is Who Rules the World, which will be published next month. His Facebook page has more than 1 million likes. Dave interviewed Noam Chomsky about sports and politics. We want to listen to highlights of that interview. Dave Zirin, welcome back. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, John. So Noam Chomsky has done hundreds of interviews. Almost all of them are about politics or political economy. How did you come up with the idea of talking to him about sports? Well, it really came from other people, because every time I argued with folks about whether or not sports have a positive or a negative impact on our modern society, the people who are in the anti-sports camp invariably point to Chomsky's words in manufacturing consent about sports being a big distraction with no inherent meaning. And I always felt like that was a bit of an oversimplification. So I said, well, who better to ask about Chomsky's opinion on sports than Chomsky? And was it hard to get him to agree to do it? To my surprise, maybe because he gets um, a million requests to talk about things like U.S. foreign policy and the 2016 elections, that uh, he was really excited about doing it. You started by asking him about growing up in Philadelphia in the 30s as a baseball fan. How did you know he had been a baseball fan as a kid in in Philly? I'll admit I'm kind of a Chomsky-ophile, and what what I really love about Chomsky more than anything is his uh, interviews with David Barsamian, and I flagged it as a kind of throwaway line that he said to Barsamian about the 1930s, and he was like, yeah, I was so busy being a Philadelphia A's fan. That uh, wasn't thinking too much about the depression. Like he has some line like that, and that made me say, "Oh, wait a minute! That, that seems like it might be a, a good vi- a good uh, avenue for discussion." Let's listen to Noam Chomsky. Yeah, I grew up in Philly, and uh, every boy in my generation has a complex of uh, failure. 
<laughs> the reason was the Philadelphia teams were in last place in every sport. And our cousins were all in New York, where the teams were all in first place and everything. So we were constantly getting uh, treated as uh, total failures. We all have inferiority complexes. For a first-generation Jewish kids, baseball was a form of Americanization. You had to know everything about the statistics, you know, the players, uh, everything else, especially, especially baseball in those days. And then you asked him if he had a favorite player. Yeah, but they were all on the Yankees, unfortunately. <laughs> in fact, the first baseball game I went to, in fact, the only one I went to, because I couldn't afford it, was uh, in 1937, I guess, my fourth grade teacher took my best friend and me to see a, a game, the A's and the Yankees. And the Yankees had all the great players. Uh, Red Ruffing was pitching, uh, Lou Gehrig, uh, Joe DiMaggio was out in center field. We were sitting right behind him. Uh, it looked as if the A's would win. But in the seventh inning, the Yankees made seven runs and won 10 to 7. So. Uh, Dave, were you amazed that he could remember a game from 1937? Um, honestly, yes. <laughs> because I have, sometimes I have trouble remembering things seven minutes ago, let alone 70 years ago. And remember, that that is what we're talking about here. I mean, not even 70. We're talking 80 years ago, for goodness sakes. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's felt almost like talking to, uh, you know, like the working class version of Charles Foster Kane about Rosebud, you know, this indelible memory of, of a kind of uh, lost innocence. And so I think we all have those kinds of memories from our childhood, and this clearly is Chomsky's. And then you asked him about the game today, and he answered by talking about fans and sports talk radio. Sometimes when I'm driving, I listen to uh, talk radio, that kind of thing. And it's pretty striking to me how when issues come to sports, people are, the people who call in are not only very knowledgeable, but extremely self-confident. Mm -hmm. So they tell the coach that he's making this mistake and that mistake and they they know a lot they can argue their points and so on but when it comes to uh, things that matter in human life it's quite different which is a dangerous phenomenon so dave what did you think of his answer to that question chomsky you know did not seem to be looking down upon or condescending to people who do look to sports radio as a kind of escape, but instead he seems to very, very um, clearly understand just exactly why um, it is that people might feel that way. And you know, if they feel powerlessness about their health care or their job or their country, why turning to sports might actually feel empowering, even if that power is actually illusory. And then you asked him what I thought was a very wild question that really came out of the blue. What's the difference between sports and games? Where did that come from? Well, every time I interview somebody who has a very broad fan base from my podcast, whether it's someone like Noam Chomsky or someone like you know the actor Don Cheadle, who I interviewed last week, um, I, I always like asking my listeners what they would like to ask this person. 
And that was a question somebody had. So let's listen to Noam Chomsky's answer to the question, what's the difference between sports and games? Sports and games? Yeah. Well, games are played for fun, and sports are played to win. That's one of the negative aspects of the, especially the professional sports scene. You have to be a winner. You're not involved in it because it's fun to do. Let me give you an example from uh, the way this seeps down to uh, even childhood these days. Uh, This same grandson I mentioned, who was a sports enthusiast, when he was about maybe seven or eight years old, was playing in uh, local sports. But it was always team sports. It was not let's go out to that uh, field back there and whatever kids are around, we'll have a baseball game, we'll play baseball. It was team sports organized by adults. I mean, I remember once going to a soccer game of his one Saturday afternoon. He was maybe seven. The referee was maybe 11. And the parents were standing on the sideline screaming at the referee. Somebody pushed their kid and he didn't give them a penalty or something. Around the same time, maybe a couple of years later, we went over to visit him one Saturday afternoon. He was happily going off to play baseball in the sports league. And he came back about an hour later, rather disconsolate. The game was called off. Why? The other team only had eight players. I mean, you, I don't play what baseball is like. His team couldn't offer the other team one player so that the kids could have fun. Ugh. You can't because you have to go by the rules that the adults want where it has to be professional and you have to win. That's sports at its most extreme absurdity, uh, what it's doing to children. But games are just things that you should do for fun. So, Dave Zyrin, your concluding thoughts on Chomsky on baseball. What were the surprises here? Uh, What fits into what we already know about Chomsky? Well, I think the thing that uh, that I'll take away from me more than anything is a description that Chomsky had in the interview of taking his grandson to play baseball. And in that little nugget of a story, I think we can understand what Chomsky's real attitude towards sports is, which is that in the abstract, it's a beautiful thing, or in the hands of children, it's a beautiful thing. But once adults start messing with it, commodifying it, um, making it overly serious and overly complicated, it really does turn into something else, something that is quite alien from the fun and games that we should all really demand of sports, not just for our children, but for ourselves. Dave Zirin, readhimatthenation.com. Listen to his podcast at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much, Sean. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.